Well, hello, Beth Takoon, and the rest of you who are watching and uh, returning to our study of the book of Yehoshua or Joshua. This week we're in chapters 15 through 17, where we get underway in the portioning out of the land of Canaan, which is west of the Jordan. From here through the end of chapter 19, we read the precise descriptions of the boundaries of the tribal lands. At this point, lots of casual readers of Joshua might skip to the end of the book or right on through to Judges. I get it. On the face of it, it's not obvious what we're to learn, but all scripture is God-breathed and is valuable for teaching the truth, convicting of sin, correcting faults, and training in right living. So there must be something here. And by golly, we're going to find it. So let's dive into the text and see what we can find. Um, For these three chapters, I'm going to just touch on a few verses with some interesting insights before I get into some broader insights. So let's go ahead and just dive into the text, and we'll jump through uh, just a few verses uh, from, from 15 and 16. So in general, for chapter 15, the ancient rabbis state that the first two tribes to receive their portions on Uh, respective sides of the Jordan, were those that had exemplified repentance and the acknowledgement of sin, right? Reuben did and so got the first portion east of the Jordan. Judah's ancestor admitted error in the affair with Tamar, and Judah himself was remarkably humble toward Joseph himself when they were reunited in Egypt. Verse 16 of chapter 15 is... uh, uh, it says here, and did I print that off? I did not. But anyway, it says here that perhaps Caleb isn't quite as battle-ready as he claimed to be in the previous chapter. Remember when he uh, comes to Joshua and says, I am, I am uh, ready to fight. Uh, but here it's, it, it, he says, basically, um, whoever can go and fight these people, I will give uh, you my daughter. So <laughs> perhaps he was a little uh, ambitious there with, with how battle-ready he was. Um, in chapter 15, verse 63, we, we should be reminded of Abraham's oath. Back in Genesis 21, verses 23 to 24, Abraham had promised not to harm Abimelech's grandchildren. Therefore, Israel couldn't conquer Jerusalem until David's time when the duration of the oath would run out. Similar to how Joshua honored the ill-gotten pledge with Gibeon, Covenantal agreements are extremely valued amongst God's people and and to God himself. Skipping to chapter 16, verses 14 through 18, it's important to note here that Manasseh had grown by 70% since the land was initially divided after leaving Egypt. This presented a challenge uh, and the reason why they came to, Josh- to Joshua uh, with their request. But Joshua couldn't give them more land because God had ordained the portions. So what Joshua did is he turned it back on Manasseh and said, well, go clear out more of the enemies in, in your land and the trees in your land and basically make it habitable. So do the work, make this portion work for you. Okay? All right. That's it for just some specific verses. So now I'd like to get into uh, some insights that I uh, found as I was studying this week. Joshua 15 describes the territory of Judah. Again, some people might just skip ahead at this point, but there are lessons in all of these names that are listed if one takes the time to explore them. 
And I want you to do that here. Now, I'm not doing a bait and switch where I say, hey, we're going to get into some insights here and then go, oh, there's something here. Why don't you go do it yourself? But this is a really good exercise for you to do. So pull out your interlinear your Bibles. Not right now, but you can pause this or do it later. Pull out your interlinear Bibles or open up a browser tab and go to blueletterbible.org or whatever tool you use to find the meaning in the original language. See what you can find there in the original Hebrew. You know, in our American English, proper nouns, place names or people names, don't have much meaning. My name is Timothy, a word that means absolutely nothing in modern English. Um, if I dig around, I can find that some Greek origins state that it means honoring God. But I don't introduce myself as honoring God. Hi, hi, my name is honoring God. No, I don't say that. I also don't use my name as a verb. I don't say that through my righteous living, I, Timothy. You get the point. Anyway, look up these place names and see what you can find. All right, so what I want to spend some time on here are words, and specifically the six Hebrew words used to describe the borders of Judah's territory, uh, and then on through the, the next few chapters. It's also interesting how much detail we're given by God here so that Israel knows exactly where its borders are and its relationship with the surrounding tribes, because that's what borders do, is they define relationships. Chapters are spent on it, right? Which begs the question, why? What is God trying to teach us by going on and on about boundaries? Well, I think the answer lies not in the physical example we read about here, but in its spiritual equivalent, the boundaries of our souls. But let's talk about the physical example here. After all, these descriptions are given as to where the boundaries are. Would they then be apparent? Would any given Israelite standing at or near a border see the border? No, not likely. He might see a river or a ridgeline or a city, but he would have to recall the description to know where the boundary is. Words. Similarly, if you were to take a map out of your neighborhood, do you see property lines on this map? Well, it depends on the map. But if you were to just get on the high point and look out, you wouldn't see the plot lines or lot lines. You'd have to remember, or you'd have to go to a special place and read a document that lines it out for you. And it is typically done with words. Words. The words form the boundary. Words are abstract, too. Something interesting that words do is they do more to engage the mind than does a picture or what our own eyes see. Did you know that? So if I wanted to engage your mind about, say, a house, I wouldn't show you a picture of a house. I wouldn't. I would either show you or say the word house. Instantly in your mind, you would picture what to you is house. And everyone's picture would be different, but it would be unique to you. So the word of God defines our boundaries using many, many words. It's abstract, not obviously observable. Likewise, our limits, what is or is not permitted, are not obvious or observable. We're like wandering sheep who have no grasp on what borders are for, but God, our shepherd, sees them clearly and reveals them to us through his word. 
These words engage our minds to create the spiritual structures, the fences, the walls, whatever, to keep us safe, fed, warm, whole, etc. We need to be aware of these boundaries in every aspect of our lives. The boundaries he gives define us. Within the boundaries of ourselves, there are other boundaries. And this is also pictured in our physical bodies. Pathways and barriers. God has mapped us out physically and spiritually. And the word is as specific with the spiritual borders as it is with the physical borders we see here in Joshua. Like sheep, if you cross a border, you are far from the shepherd's protection. So let's stay within these boundaries. Boundaries are so important to the identity, safety, and peace of the tribes. Likewise, they are important to the identity, safety, and peace of ourselves. So let's look at these six Hebrew words used to describe the borders or boundaries of the tribes. In Hebraic thought, there are six dimensions. Up, down, left, right, forward, and backward. This tells us that God is interested in every dimension of our lives and ourselves, and he teaches us concerning all of them. So here are the six words and a few things to note about them. Number one, yarad. Yarad means to descend or to go down uh, and is used uh, often in describing what it means to go down to get a drink of water from a stream. Its first use is in Genesis chapter 11, verse 5, when God came down, when he yarad, to see the Tower of Babel. He moved from a higher place to a lower place. So sometimes in our lives, we do go down from a higher place to a lower place. The second Hebrew word, yala, to ascend. Uh, it's also the root word for aliyah, which is when we ascend to the Torah. Uh, It is used sometimes to convey uh, uh, overcome or increase from a lower state to a higher one, right? And so some places in our lives we go up to. The third Hebrew word, yatsa, which means to go out or to go forth. Its first use is in Genesis chapter 1 verse 12, when the earth brought forth grass, so it isn't so much a, a, a directional word. It can be, but it is something that brings something about. And in some places in our lives, we do go out or we bring something, we bring something forth. The fourth Hebrew word, avar, means, or, or is translated as to pass over. Its first use is in Genesis chapter 8, verse 1. And I'll read it here. But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the cattle that were with him in the ark. And God caused a wind to pass over Avar, the earth, and the water subsided, the water of the flood. Some places in our lives we are to go over. The fifth Hebrew word is savav, to go around or to surround. In some places in our lives, some aspects of our lives or our souls we are to encompass or to surround or to go around. Finally, the sixth Hebrew word is ta'ar, which is translated as to delineate with a line, to outline or to see, to describe. 
lines we know connect points, so they go from one to the other. So in a way, it is a it is a going from one place through to another. It first appears here in Joshua chapter fifteen, where boundaries are described. And so, some places in our lives, we create more boundaries, boundaries within boundaries that connect or isolate, much like the inside of our bodies that are boundaries, barriers to protect things within the body that is also that also has a boundary or a border and is protected. Up, down, over, through, around, all of these things, all these ways in which to describe the boundaries and the borders that God is setting forth here for the people of, uh, of Israel. Uh, important things to note and to remember. Moving on to chapters 16 and 17, we read here now about Joseph's territory. So if, if we were talking about Judah before that, now we're talking about Joseph's territory. And it's worth noting here that the sages say that there are two messiahs. Uh, and we've heard this for years um, in our congregation. There's Mashiach ben Yosef and Mashiach ben David. Messiah, son of Joseph, and Messiah, son of David. In portioning out the promised land, the first two tribes are Judah, David's tribe, and Joseph. It's also believed that the sages, uh, believed by the sages, that the in the final redemption, the two messiahs will come from Judah and Ephraim. And who is Ephraim's father? Joseph. We, of course, understand these two messiahs to be one and the same. Yeshua, who in his first coming came as Yeshua ben Yosef, and who will in his second coming be Yeshua ben David, the conquering Messiah, conquering king. All that to say that these first two tribes, Judah and Joseph, have very strong messianic undertones. But Joseph is split here into two tribes, Manasseh, the firstborn, and Ephraim. Manasseh means forget, and Ephraim means fruitful. So let's review something that Grant taught us, and I'm going to paraphrase here. This is from a teaching he did back in, do you remember when it was, David? 2012? Was it that far back? It was quite a while ago. Uh, but here's what, here's what uh, Grant had to say. Manasseh was born first, but Ephraim got the best. Okay? The first step of walking with the Lord is forgetting. Remember, Manasseh means forget. Putting away your past, putting away your sins forgetting them. And all you need for that is an understanding of the historical Yeshua, reading the Gospels, recognizing in history what he did, and how through him, by putting your faith in him, your sins are put away. They are forgotten. It's a historical fact that he has dealt with your sins, and they can be put away. But you cannot have a relationship with the historical Yeshua. You can only have a relationship with the living Yeshua. Having faith in what Yeshua came and did is a great starting point, believing it. But fruitfulness, the Ephraim, as you abide in him. John 15.4 says, Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither you can, not, so neither can you unless you abide in me. He didn't say, you study what I did and read about me in the Gospels and say, yes, I believe he did, I believe uh, what he did and what he said. No, 
You must abide in him now. You must have a living relationship with Yeshua. So while we don't have Yeshua here with us in the flesh, we do have him here spiritually. But for that to be of any good for us, we must be spiritually transformed, spiritually attuned, and spiritually abiding in him. He says, and if you abide in me, you will be fruitful. But forgetting comes first. Manasseh was the firstborn. But Ephraim comes next, and Ephraim gets the best, the fruitfulness. Forgetting is a start, but fruitfulness is the goal. Remember that. Well, this was a bit of a shorter teaching, even though we were doing three chapters this month. So we'll just leave it uh, here for this week. So until next week, may God bless you all. And may he make us into the kind of people who recall the descriptions of the boundaries he puts in place to keep us a holy people. May he make us into the kind of people who abide in his Yeshua and who are fruitful in our daily lives. Shalom.